0: And welcome to the Ringer MLB show. My name is Ben Lindbergh, and I'm a writer for theringer.com. And on the other line, it's my fellow writer for The Ringer. He's not singing this week, but there's still a song in his heart. It's Michael Bauman. Hi, Michael. There is a song in my heart because the
1: new spring training caps were announced. Uh-huh. And they are awesome. They are usually awful. And this year, the Mariner's one with the Trident is amazing. The Brewer's one with the glove is amazing. The Dodgers are still stealing Dynamo Moscow's script D logo for their alternative cap. The Mets with the blue top and the orange bill is amazing i just want to i want to possess all of them they're incredible
0: the braves went with the tomahawk not as great yeah
1: well that one it's a little heavy on native american iconography yeah. for yeah for me so not all of them
0: no not as great yeah, these are mostly attractive hats. I was not aware of the hat news until you brought it up. Just in general, I'm I'm not a hat wearer, so that makes me less excited about hats. My hot take on team apparel is that uniforms are fine. That is my basic belief about baseball uniforms. They're fine. And sometimes they're terrible, but unless it's like Diamondback's like bloody lower leg uniforms, I'm kind of just okay with it.
1: I could not have disagreed,
0: like I'm not sure it's (laughs) literally possible for me to have disagreed with
1: with that entire paragraph that you just spewed onto the internet. (laughs) You're pro-bloody leg. I I am pro-bloody leg. It's the next (laughs) innovation. We're going to look back on it like everybody (laughs) thought that the Astros uniforms, the the tequila sunrise jerseys from the 80s were ugly and now everybody's, you know, we're all doing throwbacks. They're going to be You know, if we live to the year 2035 (laughs) there, every team's going to have the bloody leg. And I'm a big hat person. I wear hats all the time. I've got I collect minor league hats with weird logos and I've got a rotation of like about a dozen that I wear all around. So this is like this is my wheelhouse. I I would love to see some of these design elements show up in the regular season because they're just they're more fun. And Mm baseball is just so stodgy.
0: Yeah, I think that the, the Diamondbacks uniforms will go down as the 1970s White Sox shorts of the 2000 teens, probably. I don't think it's coming back. Maybe everything comes back after a couple decades, yeah. but it'll take a while.
1: I want cargo pants to come back while we're... <laughs> they were great. We should we should do cargo pants again. I
0: had a cargo pants phase. Everyone did. Yeah, we all did. Yeah. Just, I want
1: another one. That's <laughs> what I'm saying. <laughs>
0: So later in this episode, we're going to be talking to Craig Breslow, who Evan Jellick of the Boston Herald recently wrote, had the most interesting offseason in baseball. He's a 36-year-old major league pitcher. We're going to be talking to him because he is looking for a job now. He may have a job by the time you hear this, but he reinvented himself this offseason using stats and data and wearable and tracking technology. And that is catnip for for us, certainly for me. So we talked to him. He's a, a smart guy and he took us through the whole process of modeling himself after other successful pitchers in an attempt to improve his own performance. But first, we are talking to the White House press secretary. Not that White House press secretary, an alternative White House press secretary.
1: A White House press secretary who could get through a briefing without looking like he wanted to be raptured off the face (laughs) of the earth.
0: Exactly. So Josh Earnest was the White House press secretary under President Obama for parts of four years. He worked under President Obama even before President Obama was President Obama and now has a little bit more time to talk about baseball on podcasts. He also happens to be a very big baseball baseball fan. So we are welcoming him now. Hey, Josh. How you doing guys? Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Thank you for, for coming on. So you recently relinquished the press secretary Twitter account, which means that you, you went from seven-figure followers to five-figure followers. <laughs> on the on the plus side, you got to change your profile picture to one where you're wearing a Royals cap. So I guess there's a, a silver lining. But even when you were in the office and even when you were operating that account, you always made space for the Royals in your Twitter bio. So I, I guess how have you adjusted to the post-presidency period what is the i guess the exiting the the white house crash do you sleep for weeks how do you adjust to not having to answer to the world's media every day
2: yeah that's a good question i will say the pace of life is decidedly different and Mm -hmm. uh, there's nothing wrong with that necessarily you know but, but the picture that the profile picture on twitter that you referenced Uh, It is a picture of me wearing a Royals cap, and that is actually, that photograph was taken the day after the Royals won the World Series in 2015. I was traveling Mm -hmm. with the president that day, and I donned my Royals cap as I walked from Marine One to Air Force One for a a trip to New Jersey for that day. So that was a... uh, that was the way that I could demonstrate publicly my uh, enthusiasm for the Royals' uh, World Series victory. Mm-hmm. Uh, but listen, life outside the White House uh, isn't so bad. It's uh, you know just two weeks ago now that uh, the, the White House changed hands, and I have definitely been catching up on some sleep. Uh, I've definitely been spending some more time at home. My, uh, my wife and I have a, uh, a two-year-old son that uh, is keeping me busy with tasks that do not require me to wear a, a shirt and a tie and do not require me to shave every morning. So... <laughs> We've been uh, been having some fun around here.
0: (laughs) Well, most of us are sleeping less since you left office, but we'll we'll (laughs) leave it at that. I'll consider that a compliment. Thank you. (laughs) So tell us about your Royals roots, because they go very deep. So what is your level of fandom? It's high, clearly, but how did you form the attachment?
2: Well, listen, I was born and raised in Kansas City, and uh, as uh, I think every... Just about every red blooded uh, Midwestern American boy uh, played a lot of baseball growing up. And, you know, when I was, uh, when I played Little League Baseball, everybody on the team at the beginning of the year argued over who was going to get to wear number five, just like George Brett. So that's, uh, I have a lot of memories of following the Royals as a kid. My dad every year would get the uh, advanced schedule. And would strategically choose which games on the home royal schedule, he would choose which tickets we would buy over the season. And he had a couple of rules. He would not buy tickets in April uh, because it was too likely that it was going to be too cold for uh, any normal human being to sit outside and watch baseball. Mm-hmm. uh and he would not buy tickets for the last two weeks in September for the same reason but uh anytime between May and mid September we could uh, we could count on going to a few games every year and uh usually we were sitting in the upper deck at uh what was then Royal Stadium which is now Kauffman Stadium but a couple of times a year my dad would uh shell out a little a few extra dollars for the uh lower level seats and uh those were always something that we looked forward to but uh, I spent my uh, I spent my life, uh, certainly my childhood, you know, going to Royals games and uh, watching those. Uh, and I, I was fortunate to be a young baseball fan when the Royals were quite good uh, in the early and uh, and mid '80s. So you know, watching all those teams when George Brett was in his prime, uh, and certainly that 1985 uh, World Series championship team is as a Kansas City Royals team that I remember very well.
1: So, I'm going to ask a question that'll annoy Ben, but as a, a college baseball fan and a Houston resident, I noticed you went to Rice around the same time as uh, Lance Berkman. So, were you aware of, of the baseball team at all while, while you were there?
2: I was. I, uh, I, I did go to Rice. I played baseball in high school, uh, but I was not nearly good enough to play baseball in, uh, uh, at Rice in college. But those Rice teams, when I was uh, at Rice, actually it did coincide with the real, pretty remarkable improvement and rise in the baseball program at Rice. Uh, Wayne Graham, who is actually still the the head coach, you know, leads
1: the miraculously baseball team down there. He's, I mean, he's uh, yeah, one hundred and fifty five years he, old right
2: now. Well, look, when I was uh, when I was in uh, when I was in college, so more than uh, twenty years ago, people were whispering about how much longer he'd be he would be coaching. But he had a very successful junior college career in Texas before coming on board to Rice, and he did a great job of recruiting all around the state of Texas. And Lance Berkman was the same year that I was there. A year older than me was actually Jose Cruz Jr., who had quite a following in the Houston area because his dad had been a star for the Astros. And so uh, you had those two guys in the middle of the lineup, uh, and you had a pretty good um, Division One men's baseball team just with those two guys, uh, you know, hitting uh, three and four right there. The thing that they clearly prioritized when I was sort of in the early years—again, this is the mid-90s—Graham and his staff clearly prioritized recruiting some hitters because uh, the pitching staff at Rice was not always uh, as strong as the as the batting order, you might say. So, they used to have a tradition uh, among the students at Rice where they had a little uh, a little rise in the land out just beyond the left field fence. So, somebody would spring for uh, renting a keg and they'd set a keg up on the rise uh, just outside the left-field fence, and you could uh, sit outside just beyond the left-field fence and watch the game. And uh, a lot of those games had scores more closely resembling football games than they did uh, baseball games. Rice in the mid-'90s won a lot of uh, games 16 to 12.
1: All right, that's the end of college baseball.
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> I appreciate it. So, what was your thinking about the Royals heading into this winter? I think a lot of people were looking at 2017 as sort of a last ride for this core group that produced such success, and a bunch of people heading toward free agency. So it seemed like a a pivotal time. Were they going to reload and make one more big run? And that didn't exactly happen. Maybe they they took a different tack, and and this also sort of, as currently constituted, looks like a different kind of Royals team. It doesn't seem like. It's going to be the high contact, high speed, great bullpen teams, still a good defensive team, but the Mm -hmm. hallmarks of the the World Series and pennant winning teams don't quite seem to be there anymore. So what's your level of of optimism and how did you feel that the offseason went?
2: Well, like any, uh, like any lifelong baseball fan, you're always optimistic as we sort of get, uh, you know, the last few weeks before the start of spring training. So so I'm optimistic. But yeah, this, is, this really is sort of the last year for you know, this core group of players. The Royals did succeed in, uh, you know, in re-signing Salvi Perez to a longer term contract, which actually is, is something that Royals fans are pretty enthusiastic about. He's obviously very popular around Kansas City. Uh, and the Royals actually had taken the step of signing Rodano Ventura to a longer-term contract, too, and envisioned him being an important part of the team after part of the window closed. But obviously, you know, he uh, he died a couple of weeks ago in a, in a really tragic car crash uh, uh, in the Dominican Republic. And, uh, you know, I, I know that that hit not just the Royals players in the front office, but really the community of Kansas City pretty hard. He was somebody who was he did not have a big public profile around town. He didn't have a big personality, despite some of the fire that he showed on the field. Uh, but was somebody who was... Um, uh, you know still very early in his career despite the fact that he's somebody that you know having played uh, uh you know having started games in the 2014 and the 2015 world series he's one of those guys who seemed like his career was a lot longer than it actually was and he was uh he was envisioned as playing a key role in that uh, in the starting rotation uh, for years to come so obviously that's a that's a big loss not just in 2017 for the royals you know in strictly baseball terms here not just in 2017 but in but beyond so Look, I am hopeful that, um, and I think what the Royals front office is really counting on is some improvement from some players who didn't perform as well as they had hoped, uh, and also a recovery from some injuries too. Both uh, Mustakis and Kane were out of the lineup uh, for the last couple of months of the year, and you know Gordon was basically in a season-long slump uh, in the year after signing that big uh, for agent contract. Hosmer had a great first half, but struggled in the second half. So they're hoping for some improvement. And, you know, there has been some speculation about whether or not the Royals are sort of, uh, you know, changing their strategy or adapting their strategy. I do think that the signing and emergence uh, of Kendris Morales was really big for them. He is somebody who lengthened that lineup pretty significantly, you know, in 2015. Uh, and so having him in the middle was a real difference. He's somebody who, who obviously didn't play much defense at all because he was the, basically the full-time designated hitter didn't have a lot of speed but certainly added some pop in the lineup that they really needed and I do think that they were concerned about losing him as a free agent this uh you know this offseason and I think that contributed to their desire to trade for somebody like Jorge Soler and then obviously signing Brandon Moss uh, more recently as a free agent is an effort to try to make up for that vulnerability um in terms of trying to look for some pop in that lineup but you do still have some guys that uh you know that can uh, uh wield the leather and uh, uh, and can get around the bases pretty quickly I do think there are some questions about what, how the bullpen comes together. You know, a lot of the success that the Royals had in 2014 and 2015 in staffing up that bullpen was actually their ability to find people sort of off the scrap heap. You know, Ryan Matson is a great example of that. Somebody who you know mm-hmm. basically had been out of baseball and resurrected his career and made a meaningful contribution to the to the Royals in the bullpen. In some ways, Wade Davis is actually in that category. The Royals had traded for him, hoping that he'd be a starter. He was miserable as a starter, but they put him in the bullpen, and he was uh, arguably the most dominant uh, relief pitcher in the major leagues for a couple of years. So mm-hmm. so they're going to have to be, I think the Royals are counting on the same kind of thing, some improvement amongst some established players uh, from down years last year. And then they're also looking for sort of the next wave of talent to really step up, and in particular, I think, to assume uh, uh, an important role in uh, shoring up that bullpen. Uh, that obviously was key to their success when they've been good and they're going to need a bullpen a good bullpen again uh this year uh, if they want to reach the postseason again.
1: So, how do you follow baseball from inside the White House? Like, you know, this is not a job where you, like if you have mlb.tv open on your computer all day, people are going to notice. Um, You know, and like there's not even a lot of downtime for you to go home and watch a ball game after work. So how do you how do you keep up with that on the job?
2: Yeah, well, I I, I do have uh, MLB TV, and that is something that I did watch from home a little bit. Major League Baseball actually does make for good background noise while you're reading.
0: Do they give the White House a non blacked out version of MLB TV?
1: Sadly, they don't. Wow. Uh, That's, um, okay.
0: That makes that makes us feel <laughs> a little better about not being able to <laughs> get it. Even the president cannot overcome the, the local blackouts. Okay. Right. Well, a press secretary can. Maybe the, yes, the right. president can. <laughs> Maybe. That's right.
2: That's right. But uh, but so, you know, I, I, when you have a job like uh, like working in the White House, where um, you've got lots of demands on your time, having an escape is really important. And following the Royals closely was my little escape. And if that was just you know, spending 15 minutes on the MLB website or the the Kansas city star sort of reading about what happened in the game the night before or catching some highlights uh, using the MLB app. Uh, that was uh, that was a nice little escape for me. And sometimes that would be early in the morning. Sometimes that would be late at night. Uh, sometimes that would be right in the middle of the day. What I often found is that after doing an hour, an hour and a half long briefing of answering questions uh, on camera, uh, you got to find a way to decompress a little bit. And uh, if the Royals had a, uh, uh, had a weekday uh, getaway day afternoon game, uh, then that. Uh, you know watching a watching a half inning or a full inning or so was a nice way to unwind a little bit after a after a lot of stress
0: in the middle of a briefing so we know that the president is an accomplished trash talker from everything we've heard we know from Kobe Bryant that he talks a lot of smack on the basketball court he talks about the bulls all the time you two are both al central fans of different teams so how much trash talking of your respective teams was going on on a on a day-to-day basis and i, I guess maybe the balance of power, baseball-wise, changed during the course of your relationship because you started working for him in 2007, and the White Sox at that point were coming off the World Series a couple of years earlier. They made the playoffs in 2008. The Royals had been horrible forever, and then, of course, the the tables turned, and the Royals became the dominant team in the division. So, can you describe how much Obama baseball talk there was, just a uh, day to day, month to month? Yeah, well, you've done your homework. Because
2: the president is an inveterate <laughs> trash talker, uh, he never, he never will hesitate to tell you when he's feeling good about his position, and that's true when he's uh, cheering on his team from the sidelines, whether it's the White Sox, the Bears, or the Bulls. Uh, that's also true when he's on the golf course, and uh, it's also been known to happen when, uh, around the card table as well. So mm-hmm. uh, he doesn't hesitate to uh, to let you know if he's feeling good about his uh, his team or his place. But you know, the, the president's incredibly proud of the White Sox, and you know, some of that is the White Sox. Uh, They have a different reputation, obviously, than the Cubs. The White Sox are, in some ways, live in the Cubs' shadow a little bit. But, you know, the White Sox obviously were, did have a, a, there's a similar aspect to their profile, which is that the White Sox are, uh, uh, in some ways, sort of the historic underdog. Uh, And some of that's because of living in the Cubs' shadow that they felt a little overlooked, I think, on occasion. And so when their team uh, performed well, uh, obviously their fans are pretty excited about it. And uh, President Obama did follow the team particularly closely during their uh, their run in 2005 to win in the World Series. So in terms of baseball more generally, I, I, the, the president was not somebody who would uh, you know, sort of look at the White Sox box score every night, uh, but mm-hmm. somebody that sort of followed the broader stories uh, over the course of the baseball season and uh, paid special attention to his uh, White Sox. But uh, all that is to say that the president actually did end up being a pretty big fan of the Royals. That they just had a really good story—the small-market team building from the ground up, decades of futility, uh, sort of being overcome, you know, and beating some big-market teams as uh, as they uh, as they made their way to the playoffs. And so. Uh, There's a little bit of trash talking, but mostly the president was living a little vicariously through uh, the royal success, uh, particularly in 2014 and 2015 when they made those World Series runs. You know, he really enjoyed following that team. And, um, you know, obviously one of the highlights of my tenure at the the White House, I I was the press secretary for the last two and a half years, but I uh, served in the Obama White House all eight years that President Obama was there. Uh, Mm -hmm. and. One of the genuine highlights of my eight years in the White House was the day that the Kansas City Royals came to the White House in July right. of 2016 to celebrate uh, their 2015 World Series championship. It was a fun chance to meet a bunch of the players. And, you know, the president had an opportunity to meet with the players, meet with the front office, and I was talking with them the next day. Uh, and he remarked about how much fun it was to host them at the White House, that they seemed genuinely excited about the opportunity. There's a lot of passion among the fans. And he really enjoyed uh, the opportunity to have them at the White House. And, uh, you know, I think some of that is uh, because he paid attention to their run. And as, uh, I think as a sports fan, even if you're not a big baseball fan, but, but even as a sports fan, the Royals have, you know, particularly in the last few years, have had just a great story uh, in terms of the run that they've made through the postseason and the president uh, enjoyed following them uh, as much as anybody else.
1: So I wanted to ask about meeting not just the Royals, but, you know, the champions of whatever sport come to the White House. In your interaction and, you know, having seen, like, Johnny Gomes' suit, like, who has the bigger ego, politicians or athletes?
2: (laughs) That is a... In some ways, it's hard to tell, right? There's more... There's greater variation within than there is between... You know, obviously, there's a lot of uh, you know a lot of athletes that uh, walk pretty confidently into the White House. I think that probably on average, it's the athletes that have the bigger ego, and I say that primarily because they're younger uh, and they haven't been humbled in the way that some, I'd say that just about every politician has been. So it requires obviously a healthy dose of self-confidence to uh, be in politics and to succeed in politics. But politics is the kind of uh, uh, endeavor also where uh, you generally have to be on the receiving end of, uh, of a humbling incident or two. And over the course of a career, that can put your ego in check at least a little bit more than professional athletes who are still at the height of their, at the peak uh, of their performance. They haven't encountered as much humbling as some seasoned politicians typically have.
1: Changing gears a little bit. Over the past couple of weeks there's been the concept of of stick to sports has been floating around in sports media a lot. You know, our Brian Curtis is written about it, uh, Jonah Carey at CBS, like when not only in such politically heightened times is everybody thinking about politics all the time, but you know, there are intersections uh, between sports and politics, whether it's changes in immigration policy affecting NBA players or stadium funding or, or labor relations. So from the political side of that, you know, do you think that it's possible to stay in your lane even if you wanted to?
2: Uh, yes, I think the answer to that is, is yes. Primarily because... You know typically when we're talking you know, about this question, you know, we're talking about people who are public figures, and sometimes it's writers or podcast hosts or broadcasters who sort of face this question as they're covering sports, are they going to use that platform to also talk a little bit about politics too? With athletes, it's a little bit different. These are athletes that have the limelight and they have the limelight because of their proficiency at a sport. Uh, and the question is, are they going to use that limelight to weigh in on or advocate for? a political preference or a set of values that they feel strongly about. And I think it does come down to a personal choice. I think it is an entirely credible position to take to say, if you're a writer, look, people read my column because they want some escape from the wor- real world. They want an escape from the debate. I hope they won't ignore the debate, but if they want to use me as an escape, then I'm going to, you know, analyze the starting rotation for the Washington Nationals and the Washington Post. There's somebody else in the pages of the Washington Post who are, Talking about gridlock on Capitol Hill or the controversial executive order from the new president of the United States, and I and I think that is an entirely credible, a uh, legitimate decision uh, for somebody to make. At the same time, I also think it's uh, it, it's credible for uh, figures who are in the limelight to use that limelight to express their personal views, and that is likely going to subject them to criticism because the reason that they maybe feel uh, they feel the need to express those personal views is because those views are. The subject of intense debate, and people who don't agree with them are likely to criticize them and subject them to the kind of criticism that they would otherwise, would otherwise not be aimed in their direction. So uh, I can understand. I think that's going to make, and I think it does make uh, many athletes reticent about doing that. I think what's different in the current environment is that much of what's being debated now transcends the typical back and forth of debates that we've had about the best way to govern the country. Much of what is the subject of controversy right now is not the typical sort of back and forth between a democratic governing philosophy and a Republican governing philosophy. What's the subject of intense debate right now are some issues that go to the core of our identity as Americans. They go to the founding values of this country. And I can understand why there are some people uh, in the sports world or other places who have the limelight? Who in the past have declined to get involved in politics, but who are taking a different look at it now? And I think that's a credible thing, given the stakes of the uh, of the ongoing debate. So, uh, you know, I, I think the question really is: Is will the intensity of this debate, and will these kinds of values continue to be uh, called into question in such a fundamental way over the long term? Is this a short-term phenomenon? Sort of, you know, if you've got a new incoming president. Uh, who who made a lot of big promises, who feels a responsibility to deliver. So, you know, are we going to have six months of this intense debate and do, are things going to settle down after that uh, or not? I've been around politics for quite a long time uh, and been in the White House for the last eight years, but I would be reluctant to, to hazard a guess at this point. I'm not sure that anybody knows exactly uh, how this is going to play out you know, over the next, you know, three or four months, let alone three or four years. Mm
0: -hmm. What do you think about baseball's PR presence as a professional yourself? Baseball sometimes gets a reputation as sort of the the stodgy sport, and maybe that has to do with its long history. Maybe that's unavoidable, but are there different ways in which you would try to market baseball? Are there aspects of the game that you would try to stress? Do you have any tips, any advice? Yeah,
2: well, listen, I I think, compared to football, that baseball is actually a much more colorful, has a much more colorful way of, you know, at least the players and coaches and even members of the front office have more latitude, it feels like, uh, to be a little more colorful in expressing themselves.
0: Has the NFL reached out to you yet? They need you.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, the the NFL did something really smart uh, about a year or so ago. They hired uh, one of my uh, longtime predecessors, a guy named Joe Lockhart, who was uh, the press secretary for Bill Clinton during his second term in office. They hired him as the VP of Communications, I believe that's his title, hopefully I didn't just give Joe a demotion, but um, about a year ago. And he is a really smart guy, and I think that um, that those who are in positions of authority in the NFL will benefit from uh, listening to the good advice that he'll have to share with them. So setting aside the NFL, I think that uh, that Major League Baseball, all things considered, does a pretty good job of marketing teams and players and disseminating their product. You know, we were talking earlier about um, MLB.tv and the MLB app. Again, that's, I guess I will bring the NFL back into this one more time. As somebody who grew up in Kansas City, I live now in Washington, D.C. Other than having somebody attach a satellite dish to the roof of my house uh, and paying a large sum of money to a satellite company, I can't watch the Kansas City Chiefs on, on a regular basis during the regular season from my home. Uh, mm-hmm. and they only play 16 games a year. And I've never quite figured out why the NFL thinks that it's a good business model to limit people's ability uh, to consume their product, but that's what they have, uh, they've concluded. And I'm sure there's a good reason for that, so I'm happy for somebody to come in and, and make that argument. But it does, as a fan of the Chiefs, well, I'm, I don't follow them as much, and I'm not as big a fan of the NFL uh, as a result. The Royals, on the other hand, and Major League Baseball, actually make it really easy for me to follow them, You know, whether it's from my phone or my iPad or from my television downstairs through the, uh, through the Apple TV. I basically have access to just about every single pitch of uh, every Royals game through the regular season. So the way that the, I guess that's a long version of, the way that Major League Baseball has invested in their online presence and uh, made a real business out of developing an expertise in distributing it through online channels, uh, I think has been really smart. And uh, that's something that is going to benefit baseball, and I think is uh, going to be useful in cultivating uh, the next generation of, of baseball fans. You know, one of the last things I did at the White House was actually attend uh, the ceremony that the president held to honor the Chicago Cubs for their twenty sixteen World Series uh, championship. And uh, obviously, there are a bunch of Chicagoans there, and the president was pleased to see so many people from his hometown. But one of the things that you know I realized in attending the event is that I've got a lot of warm memories of the Cubs, not because I grew up in Chicago, but because I did grow up uh, watching the the Cubs day games on WGN and just having access uh, to those games uh, as a kid really made an impression on me. And 30 years later, I, yeah, I still remember people like Jody Davis and Ryan Sandberg and Andre Dawson and Ron say, and Sean Dunstan, Mark Grace, all of these Cubs fans from that era is something that I remember and still gives me uh, some affection for the team. And I think, um, Major League Baseball's commitment to continuing to distribute their product uh, is likely to inspire a future generation of, uh, of baseball fans in the same kind of way. Uh, and I think it's good for the sport and it's obviously good for the bottom line of the owners of the Major League Baseball teams.
1: I will say as someone who's who grew up uh, watching Andy Reid manage the clock, I think that the NFL denying you the Chiefs 16 weeks a year might be good for you in the long run. <laughs>
2: or at least good for my blood pressure, right? Yeah,
1: you'll you'll live longer, <laughs> definitely, if you can't watch him. So one of the most intimidating things about watching someone do your job is having to be on your toes and, and being able to not only just have the the breadth of knowledge to answer questions but to spin think on your feet like that so i don't know how how familiar you are with the the cardinals astros hacking scandal that's unfolded over yeah, okay how would you spin that if you were you know if you were trying to do damage control for for the st louis cardinals
2: yeah look I, I my experience tells me that that telling the truth as quickly as you can is the best method for handling a situation like that you know with that Cardinals executive did was wrong. It was dishonest, it was unethical, and it was illegal. And being as direct uh, about that as possible, uh, holding him accountable for his actions, which I understand that they did, and making clear that that's inconsistent with uh, the culture of the team, I um, I think that is in general what they did. And I think that was the right thing for them to do. In those situations, it's pretty cut and dried that what he had done was uh, you know, pretty indefensible. Now that's easy to say now uh, that we all, that all the facts are out. So one of the challenging things uh, both about my job at the white house, but I'm sure that this was true the very first time that somebody in the, um, in the public relations department of the Cardinals got a phone call about this is that you are, and people understandably are demanding answers before you know all the facts. Uh, and so that's why it was important for, the cardinals to conduct their own investigation. I know that there are some federal authorities that were involved as well, but the cardinals, I know, that spent a lot of time trying to figure out what exactly had happened. So while that's happening, uh, people are demanding answers before those kinds of investigations have been concluded. And I think that's why it's important for uh, in those moments to not get ahead of the facts and to acknowledge, and this was certainly true when I was doing the briefing. If somebody asked me a question that I didn't know the facts yet, either because I hadn't been briefed on them or they haven't been conclusively determined, then you need to say so. And rather than guess, uh, or rather than um, offer up alternative facts, which is a strategy that's been uh, recently suggested in our uh, political environment, uh, it's important to demonstrate some maturity. It also requires some discipline to say, "Listen, it, it's it, it, it can be challenging when you're standing in front of a camera, uh, or in the case of the White House briefing room, in in front of uh, several cameras, uh, and it's your responsibility to go out there and answer questions." It takes some maturity and some discipline, and some and a little courage to say, listen, I, I, as soon as I know, I will let you know, uh, but those either those facts haven't been gathered yet, I don't know, I'm going to have to get back to you. Uh, it requires a little self-confidence to be able to do that. Uh, but I, you know, in some ways, I think this uh, Cardinals-Astros situation is probably a pretty good illustration of that, because I'm sure the person who picked up the phone uh, in the PR department for the, uh, for the Cardinals when they were asked that question, their natural instinct was to defend the person who was in their front office. But... Uh, they were better off saying, "You know, look, we're going to, you know, let's get, we're going to get to the bottom of this before we say anything publicly, uh, or before we say much publicly." Uh, in this environment where news travels so fast, being able to exercise some discipline uh, and make sure that uh, even as people are demanding answers, that you uh, you have the facts straight before you start talk, talking publicly, because uh, you don't want to be in a situation in which you say something that's not true. It makes it look look like you're covering up uh, the thing that they're initially asking about, and you've obviously uh, at that point then
0: compounded the problem you have and i guess lastly you know you're coming out of a job where as demoralizing as it may have been or frustrating as it may have been at times you could tell yourself truthfully i think that you were involved in something that was making a difference that was attempting at least to leave the world a, a better place than it found it and that's not something that most people have in their day-to-day jobs and if you're writing or podcasting about baseball maybe you tell yourself that what you're doing is giving the white house press secretary uh 15 minutes to to decompress when he's done with his press conference. And maybe that's how you make yourself feel, feel better about what you do. But how are you going to try to keep that feeling, I guess, in, in whatever you do next? And how would you say that people who are not at the White House and standing up there under the cameras every day, how can they kind of get that feeling that they are contributing to something more meaningful? Or how do you think you'll plan to going forward?
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, ben, in I, some ways, you asked me the sixty-four thousand dollars question, uh, <laughs> and that is, you know, what am I going to do next? And my tenure at the White House was one that I am. Look, I, many people people have sort of been trying to um, gauge my emotions, uh, you know, in the midst of this transition and as, and as I left. And you know, what I as I was trying to gauge my emotions myself, the the thing there are a couple of things that kept. Uh, coming to mind, which is, I, I had this really overwhelming sense of gratitude for having had an opportunity to just be a part of something uh, that I really deeply believed in, and I do feel as if under President Obama's leadership, you know, we have made a lot of progress for the country. We are fighting for the right things for all the right reasons, and we did it the right way. Uh, we did, you know, the steps that we're able to take, uh, you know, were consistent with not just the values in terms of the policy objectives, but you know, we did it in a way that we could be proud of we were honest we, we upheld those values you know we acted in a way that um, that at least I would want people who are in positions of authority to act we were responsible we were responsive so I, I'm obviously proud of uh, of what we're able to do and I was I was proud to have been a part of it and I was proud of not just what we did but how we did it but yeah where to go from here it's uh, it's it's hard to say I don't know where I'm going to end up from here I think the and this goes to answer the other part of your question. One of the reasons that I so thoroughly enjoyed and am deeply grateful for the opportunities that I had at the White House is that we were working on things that I was passionate about personally. We were talking about things that I think are really important. Uh, these are the kinds of things that even on days when you're tired and may not be feeling well and you don't really feel like you want to go to work, these are the the things that cause you to hop out of bed and hop in the shower and and get going. And for different people, those are going to be different things. And that's a good thing. If uh, we we're all only motivated by the same things, and uh, there are a lot of things that would uh, be left unattended in the world. And the truth is the country that we live in and the world that we live in is a much richer place when people can successfully pursue their passion. And when people are pursuing their passion, they're going to be pretty good at it. Uh, and whether that is cooking or it is working in politics or it is celebrity journalism, or media commentary, or being a movie critic, or if it's writing and talking about baseball. Our world and our country and our culture and our society is richer uh, when people who are good at something and are passionate about something uh, share it with the world. So uh, that that certainly is uh, my view of your contribution to uh, uh, to our culture and to our society and to our country. And I think the thing that I have to figure out now is what is, you know, obviously I'm passionate about politics. I had an opportunity to explore that passion and it was immensely rewarding to me. The question for me is what's next? What what else What else is it that I'm passionate about and what, what other opportunities um, or what other contributions am I eager to make uh, by pursuing those passions? And uh, look, I'd be lying if I told you I knew right now exactly what that was. And, you know, one of the things about the White House is it's so all-consuming. It doesn't offer much time for reflection. Uh, but I've tried to, to spend a little bit of time uh, starting to think about uh, about what that next step is and what, uh, what some of those other things look like. And I'm not ready to dive into uh, any all-consuming projects just yet, but there's more that I want to do. And in the meantime, I'm going to uh, take advantage of the opportunity to do some more fun things, including uh, hanging out with you guys, talking a little baseball.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Well, people can follow Josh and keep tabs on his activities on Twitter, where he is, for now, a spokesman for himself, at Josh Ernest. Josh, thanks for coming on.
2: Gentlemen, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for inviting
0: me. All right. We'll be back in a second with big leaguer Craig Breslow.
2: Swing and a miss, and Breslow's out of the jam. Nicely done.
0: All right. Our next guest is a left-handed pitcher who has spent 11 years in the big leagues with seven different teams and might add an eighth to that list sometime soon. He is Craig Breslow. Hey, Craig. Hello. So you are blowing up these days on the MLB trade rumors tags. I think there have been something like eight Breslow related posts in the last couple of weeks. And that has to do, of course, with the showcase you put on and and how you looked at that showcase. And we will get to that soon. But can you walk us through this part of the market by the time people are listening to this you may well have already picked a team and and signed there but as you're weighing all these different offers now and we're you know 10 days away from pitchers and catchers reporting how are you making your decision? What factors are you looking at, other than you know who's going to offer you the the most money? That is a, of course, a, a good way to make a decision. But what else are you looking at, and and what form does the interest take when you you know read a Ken Rosenthal report that says so and so is going after Craig Breslow, or these teams have strong interest in Craig Breslow? How does that manifest itself?
3: Sure, um, you know I think that that question about what uh, what what. Fa- Factors or variables influence one's decision in free agency. Um, probably vary from player to player. Some of the things that I'm considering, you know, at this point in my career, are obviously, uh, you know, kind of expectations and competitive level, kind of complementary pieces in a bullpen. My my ability to kind of impact you know, a, a big league team. Uh, what kind of role I would be filling? Um, you know, is there an opportunity for me to kind of serve as, as a leader and share some of the experiences? Uh, that, that I've had in, in kind of the same manner that some of, um, the more, ex, uh, experienced pitchers have done for me in, in some of the bullpens that I've been a part of. I, I know, uh, a number of, of other players will consider proximity to home, travel schedules, and, and kind of any other host of loyalties. But for me, again, you know, having having played in on, on World Series championship teams and having played on teams that have finished last in their division, uh, winning is certainly much more fun. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, having had those experiences, it, it definitely leaves you hungry to uh, to, to find them again. Um, mm-hmm. So, so. You know I think I think uh, it would be impossible to answer that question in any one way. Uh, there's kind of a fluidity to probably five or six different variables
0: mm-hmm. and how are you getting updates on this shifting market? Are teams reaching out to you directly? Are you getting check-ins from your agent a few times a day? How does that work?
3: Yeah, primarily with my agent you know we're we're in communication pretty pretty regularly, especially now. As as spring training approaches, um, conversations were, you know, once a week or so earlier in the winter. Getting more frequent, building up to the showcase, and then now we'll we'll at least touch base a couple times a day. You know, as teams reach out, as certain players come off the board and sign contracts, um, as as offers come in, considerations come up. So it's it's been an enjoyable process. You know, it can be at times an unnerving process, but. This, um, you know, as you had mentioned, this off season or this free agency period is different for me because this is the first time where I'm kind of showcasing or advertising a new approach, a new delivery, um, a new Mm -hmm. repertoire. And so, you know, whereas in the past I had found myself uh, maybe a little bit anxious about the way things were going to play out. uh, Now I'm just legitimately excited about the opportunity to showcase this kind of new and improved delivery that I've got.
1: So let's talk a little bit about the, the new delivery. You know, you've changed your arm slot a little bit and, you know, we'll talk about everything that went into that decision and what you hope to get out of it. But how weird is it to throw from a different angle? Cause I imagine your delivery, it's the result of training and teaching, but also like it feels natural to to some extent. So how does that feel to to be thrown from the new arm angle?
3: Sure. Um, you know, it, it, felt a lot more unfamiliar early on, Um, you know, the the first time that I picked up a ball and tried to throw it from a lower arm slot, what felt like a pretty dramatic change uh, upon review and video analysis was maybe two inches, um, probably unidentifiable. To anyone other than myself, but as you know, I've been able to take reps and now I've been able to work on this for the last uh, four months or so. It feels it feels pretty natural. Uh, the idea of throwing from my old slot, you know, feels more unusual than this current one does. And what was interesting, kind of undertaking this whole project, I was able to kind of look back at some historical data that outlined my vertical and horizontal release point, point. and I actually found that over the last three or four years. Uh, my vertical release point has gone up. So I've actually been throwing from a higher and higher slot over time. My guess would be that's probably a likely a, a result of some injury guarding and some bad habits that were created out of trying to create velocity. And so, you know, while, while the arm slot I'm throwing at currently was never the one that I've used, you know, I think you can make the argument that the one that I was using over the last couple of years was probably higher than what was truly natural for me. Um, and, I, and I remember, you know, the first time I started to play around with lowering my arm slot, I was wearing a, a device called a modus sleeve, which measures uh, stress on, on the elbow. And as I lowered my arm angle, I actually decreased the stress on my elbow, but increased the velocity with which I could throw. And so the obvious question became, why wasn't I throwing like this for the last 35 years?
1: Like, how did you do this? How did you relearn all that muscle memory in four months and get all those reps in it, while at the same time not overworking yourself?
3: Yeah, that's that's definitely one of one of the balances I needed to strike. Kind of this equation between you know workload and intensity and potential to do harm. But I, I approached this very scientifically and analytically. There's a device uh, called a, a Rap Soto machine, um, which is about the size of an old Polaroid camera that takes photographs of The ball in flight and from that is able to calculate spin, spin rate, spin efficiency, horizontal and vertical movement, uh, and and also gives a 3D flight path of the ball. And so I could set this machine up, I could throw from a number of different arm angles and basically iterate different release points, grips, also link that to a camera, and then kind of go back and say... Which, you know which arm angle gave me the most desirable results in t- in terms of sink and run, um, and then kind of study video of of that and analyze what that looks like, what that feels like, and then also be able to quantify what that movement's like. And so you know, the biggest uh, the biggest challenge for me was outlining what success would be. Right when you when I set out to do this, um, you know, back starting in probably September or October. Uh, It wasn't going to, you know, I realized pretty quickly it wasn't going to be good enough to simply say in February, um, I'm better than I was last year, two years ago, et cetera, because I knew someone would say how or why or in what way or what data proves that. And so, you know, now being able to quantify the changes that I've made, I can say, well, no, my sinker is sinking six inches more than it did at any other time in my career as compared to. Pitch FX data that I can call up from the last six years. And so, you know, I didn't, I was probably kind of getting back to your question, I was probably able to save some reps because I took such a regimented approach to making the change.
0: And I don't know that there's ever been a a baseball article written about you that didn't mention your background. You are not just Craig Breslow, but Yale educated Craig Breslow, who double majored in molecular biophysics and biochem. And so you have this scientific training and background. Did you always make some effort to apply that to baseball? Were you digging into, you know, FanGraphs and Brooks Baseball and Baseball Perspectives and all of those sites from the beginning? Or did it take you going through a, a rough patch performance wise for you to start digging deeper and making those changes?
3: Um, so I would say, admittedly, I've always been interested in some of the advanced analytics and metrics that are available. But I didn't try to utilize or implement them for myself until I started to struggle uh, early, earlier in my career and while I was having success, I was probably kind of naive and assumed that that would last into perpetuity until I decided I was done playing. Um, but I can remember, you know, aside from from reading Moneyball, reading fan graph articles and Brooks baseball in in 2012, I had statistically, a, a poor or sorry, two thousand and eleven. I had statistically a poor season than I had in in previous years, two thousand and eight, nine ten were, uh, you know at least by traditional measures, better seasons. But I kept mm-hmm. thinking to myself that my stuff was the same. my command was the same. I felt like I was striking out guys at kind of the same clip. I was walking fewer guys. It just seemed like, every time a ball got put in play it found a hole and i realized there were statistics out there that could have either validated or debunked that notion um so i started to explore like batting average on balls in play and and started to say well wait a second if you know my my hard hit contact is consistent if i'm getting you know i'm striking guys out at the, at the same rate i'm Getting as many ground balls as always, and I'm giving up more hits and, and in turn, more runs. Then, in fact, I am really just kind of going through a bout of bad luck, and I should expect that things would normalize if not, you know, over the next week or month or season. Then, certainly, over the the course of a, of a career. And so, there was no reason for wholesale changes, and I think that was probably justified when when I look back at my 2012 and 2013 seasons, which were very successful without really making many changes. But then. 14, 15, and 16 were struggles, and it became time to make a pretty significant and dramatic change. Mm
1: There's a an article in the Boston Herald from last week by Evan Drellick where he quotes you as sort of trying to reverse engineer pitches from like Andrew Miller or Zach Britton and using all the pitch FX data and the the tracking data to try to do something similar yourself. But how do you go back and reinvent that pitch from you know from what you learned from the data?
3: Right. So I think what I would use as kind of the measurable goal for success would be the movement, right? So, so if I could get, I figured, you know, if I could kind of improve my sinker by 50%, if I could and if I could get it closer to Zach Britton's pitch effects data, that would be successful. You know, I looked at my breaking ball, which, you know, wasn't a true left on left breaking ball. It not get a ton of swings and misses. And then I looked at Andrew Miller's slider and said, okay, if I could kind of mimic or imitate that movement, I should have a better chance of getting success. So I could look at their data and, and kind of go through, you know, this kind of iteration is, is a common theme of, of manipulating spin until I got you know, kind of my optimal breaking ball, my optimal sinker, and then I could compare them to those kind of best-in-class standards. And so, right, it seems relatively simple, I suppose, until you start to think about all of the factors that go into successful pitches and what I can and can't control, right? So, so you know, in that article I talk about The idea of of trying to set out to throw Andrew Miller's breaking ball the way Andrew Miller throws it is probably not going to work out for me. Uh, I'm not 6'8", you know, with with incredibly long arms and fingers. But the shape of the breaking ball, the axis that it spins at, those are things that I can attempt to mimic. You know, and and Mm -hmm. likewise with with Britain's sinker, I'm not going to throw 97 mile an hour sinkers. But again, I can look at his spin, I can look at I can look at its action and I can attempt to come as close as possible to those two things.
0: Yeah, there was a period of a few years where it seemed like it was a fad for pitchers to model themselves after Roy Halliday. And some mm-hmm. of them, Charlie Morton, for instance, showed up literally looking like Roy Halliday. And of course yeah. none of them started pitching like Roy Halliday, but maybe it, it helped in some way. And and so what do you see as sort of the innate Qualities that you can't really change because you you mentioned trying to improve your spin or at least change your spin and, and spin rate seems like something that is tough to improve maybe everyone is already maxing it out or maybe it's just sort of a an innate quality but you can change the the shape of it or the direction if not the rate at which it's spinning so what are the things that fall under can be improved and what are the genetically given traits
3: yeah so so what's interesting is I would, I would say that many of the guys who, you know, set the, the standards for these pitchers, right? Andrew Miller slider, Zach Britton sinker, et cetera. They probably have not undertaken an experiment like the one that I'm doing. Andrew Miller picked up a baseball. Somebody said, you know, try to throw a slider, and that's what he came up with, right? Um, you know, it was kind of accidental or or largely inherent. But you know, so I I can't make my fingers longer. I can't make them more flexible. Um, I don't have the levers that he has. You know, and 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 you're right. Kind of overall spin rate is pretty poorly understood in terms of how to make one spin a ball more or less, right? Everyone always talks about spinning a ball faster being better, but in certain instances, I think, or spinning a ball slower is is
0: better. Right. You just want something, one of the extremes, just not sitting in the middle. Right. Right.
3: Exactly right. You want to avoid kind of the fat part of the curve, but this idea of spin efficiency is something that you can control. So not all spin contributes to movement, right? There's it's called kind of rifle spin or gyro spin. I'd spin that has an axis parallel to the to the direction that you're throwing. Um, you know what makes a spiral in football go straight. And so, if you change the axis about which you're spinning the ball, you can make without changing your overall spin rate. You can make a more productive pitch. So it turned out when I was throwing my sinker and I and I got baseline data before I kind of made these adjustments. You know, back in October, the spin. Was largely inefficient, so I converted you know a lot of that gyro or rifle spin into productive spin, allowing the ball to sink. Uh, likewise, with my breaking ball, a lot of the spin was just you know not contributing to actually making the ball break. And so, mm-hmm. by going through and changing my arm angle, my finger pressures, and grips, I ended up you know being able to create kind of the optimal breaking ball for me with those things that I'm not able to change. Right, like. The length of my fingers and my arm and, and my arm angle.
1: You know, everything that you change sort of has a knock-on effect. So, you know, you change your the way you're holding the ball. You change your arm angle. Does that mean you have to change where you're standing on the rubber? Does that mean you have to change the pitch sequencing when you eventually get into games and start attacking hitters? You know, how far, how many dominoes get knocked down because you try to throw your breaking ball a different way?
3: Right. This is certainly a progression. Um, it's February whatever it is, you know, and not opening day, thankfully, because the last kind of piece to putting all this together after, you know, continuing to ramp up intensity, we'll be using this in a game and determining where should I be standing on a rubber? What is the best pitch to throw after a sinker? What's happened to my four seamer, you know, as I've lowered my arm angle. Um, and I think those are things that will be answered in, you know, bullpens, live BPS, and spring training games. And, and ultimately, you know, I have about six weeks to figure those things out. I'll probably mess around with moving on the rubber. You know, I'll mess around with being able to throw, you know, with with sinkers kind of down in the zone and run forcing fastballs that hopefully still have high spin rates up in the zone. You know, I'll try and kind of tunnel the, the sinker with the breaking ball. Um, I'll start to play around with changing the shape of the breaking ball such that, one throwing a breaking ball doesn't necessarily need to be just one pitch um the 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 pitcher that i that i throw with here is is rich hill who's got you know the the best breaking ball in baseball and while he so he throws a fastball and a breaking ball and probably traditionally you would say that's two pitches but he can throw his breaking ball and change the shape of it such that he's got an infinite number of pitches right he can throw one that sweeps away from a left-handed hitter he can throw one that's big and slow to steal a strike. He can throw something that back, you know, that ends up at the back foot of a right-handed hitter. And so it's, you know, there are a number of weapons that can come out of that. And those are the things that I need to start playing around with. Um, you know, now that I feel pretty comfortable with being able to command the sinker and to command a breaking ball, uh, from here, I think I start to play around with shapes, sequences, velocities,
0: and, and see what works. Yeah, I was going to bring up Hill because he is sort of the most visible product of this trend toward hiring recently retired players, analytically inclined players, players like you, perhaps some years down the road, who can kind of help implement the front office's vision and be the liaison or the interface between the front office and the players. And that seemed to really help out Hill. And we had Brian Bannister on the podcast, and he talked a little bit about helping to, to reinvent Hill. And, Do you think that this is an area where younger players, maybe players who are kind of at their peak and aren't having any health problems, are they underutilizing the information that's out there? Do you look back now and say, I should have been using the equivalent of RepSoto or I should have been studying the data when I was running two ERAs out there for for a few years? Or do you say, well, at, at that point in my career, everything was working and that was what I needed to do? then?
3: You know, that's a, that's a difficult question to answer because while you're in the middle of a successful run, uh, you're understandably reluctant to make changes. Right. So I think, you know, you talk about guys like Brian Bannister and kind of this advent of former players serving kind of as liaisons between, you know, the analytics departments and the players, um, because it's Because implementing and bringing information to players is so delicate, especially when they're successful. Uh, Ultra-competitive people, when struggling, are very willing to try a number of different things. But when you're successful, your your concern is, am I risking taking myself out of this successful zone by becoming interested in, in things that I currently am not or by using information that I don't think about right now? You know, it's it's impossible to quantify how much better I could have been with more information. Right, like this. It, it's just so conceptual unless potentially, you know, we could compare my season, you know, my 2017 season with maybe my 2013 season and say, you know, 2017 was better. So think about how much better, you know, my previous best could have been. But that just becomes, you know, I think in a lot of ways. Uh, an academic exercise and not one with really any any payout. So I think baseball, I think athletes, I think people in general will always be more receptive to change when they're struggling and will always try to tune out, you know, some of this peripheral noise when they're being successful.
1: Yeah. And I wanted to ask about Something similar, you know, in Evan's article, he talked about you and throwing with uh, with Rich Hill and working out with Mike Boyle. I wanted to know: Are there any other former Red Sox lefties sort of hanging around the gym trying to reinvent themselves? Like is Hideki Okajima going to pop out of a, a closet and you know throw in a the Barry Zito curveball next season?
3: Yeah, as far as I know, we're it. You know, and and right, Rich gives everyone help, right? <laughs> you know, people are. are Obviously, what what an incredible guy and an incredible story. Um, but I think he does kind of give credibility to this idea that the experiences that that you gain you know are really invaluable in shaping the picture that you can be or you can become. um so you know the, the fact that rich is thirty seven is really just arbitrary. He's got a ton of experience from which to build. He, you know he said that one thing that that always struck me, he talked about this idea of finally being creative as a pitcher, kind of having this creative freedom to you know, really express himself on the mound in terms of manipulating shape of a breaking ball, timing of his delivery. He'll go from a slide step, he'll go from a he'll pause at the top of his delivery. You know, things that probably 10 years ago would have been kind of stricken from his repertoire uh, are, are now praised you know, it's kind of reinvention or creativity. Um, and, and I think that's really interesting.
1: So this just seems like a lot of work and you've, you know, you've played 11 years in the big leagues and you've got a ring and you've got, you know, eight figures in earnings. Why go through all this trouble? You've got, you probably have opportunities, like if, you know, if this is the end, you could go do something else. So why do this?
3: I, I love playing baseball. I'm still passionate about it. I think there's this assumption that because I can do other things, I want to be doing other things. But I mean, I'm as much a baseball player doesn't maybe have these contingencies in place. But I would also say that it's a skill that I have, right? Like you think about what makes people successful. We talked about Zach Britton sinker or Andrew Miller slider, you know, and, and, and I think one skill that I have is kind of this drive to continue to get better. You know, that's something that's made me successful. It's something that I think will continue to make me successful, but you no, know, that's kind of, that's my fastball. And, and so that's why I'm here.
1: You pitched for Israel in the world baseball classic qualifiers and your name's been sort of bandied about for the tournament later this spring. Do you know if you're playing or not, or does that depend on if you sign and where? Yeah,
3: it's still undetermined. You know, A number of factors will kind of go into that decision. i I really enjoyed the experience in, in Brooklyn in October, took a lot of pride in, in representing Israel and representing my religion, my heritage. At the same time, uh, my, my goal is to, you know, is obviously to pitch in the big leagues for the duration of 2017. And so, you know, a, a number of factors will come into play and, and I'll need to, to obviously weigh the benefit of being in spring training for its duration, for getting regular work, especially as I go through uh, this development process with a new delivery versus you know being gone for for a number of weeks um and, and not necessarily kind of getting the benefit of coaches' eyes on me being able to come together with teammates so i think uh, that's, that's something that i'll decide as soon as ultimately i i find my landing spot
0: all right well you can find craig on twitter at his name craig breslow you can also see him pitching for a team to be named later but not much later so good luck with your decision and with the new approach
3: Thank you very much. I appreciate
0: it. All right. So that will do it. We semi stuck to sports, not entirely. We struck a balance. And as CJ Craig would say, that's a full lid. That's good. I like that. Yeah. We will be back next week.